0: It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future.
1: Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: And the answers I hear a lot are, we need third parties, Mm -hmm. we need term limits, and we need corporate PAC money to be closed off. Mm -hmm. And I don't think those things are the solutions to the problems. Mm. And I think that they are emotionally, viscerally feeling that they solve something because it's like third party is like you just you're buying a new day planner and you're Mm going to be organized when you just get this (laughs) new day planner
0: hey everybody welcome to the show this is brave new work a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working i'm aaron dignan and i'm joined by my dog free co-host rodney evans
1: i do miss them but it is quiet hello everyone
0: We are also joined today by Emily Amick. Emily is a political consultant, a former lawyer in the U.S. Senate, and the brains behind the awesome Instagram account, Emily in Your Phone, where she posts political analysis, interviews with congresspeople and senators, and dope calls to action. Emily, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: On today's episode, we're going to talk about the operating system for a different kind of complex system, one that you've probably heard of and felt the impact of the U.S. government, and politics. But before we get into that nut, let's check in with each other.
1: Okay, let's do a check-in round like we always do to get present, share airtime, to immediately become a high-performing team. The question for today is, of your worldly possessions, what would be the hardest one for you to give up?
0: Hmm. And we
1: will go Aaron, then me, and then Emily will finish it off.
0: My worldly possessions.
1: worldliest.
0: Hmm...
1: I like that you're just gonna like look around your office.
0: Well, all my favorite stuff is in here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it would probably be my old books. I don't want to lose my old books. I collect very, very old books, and they—they they feel like they connect me to the past. So everything else can go. The books must stay.
1: Yeah, mine is also an old one, which is my cello. Huh. My cello is a hundred. I think it's like a hundred and seventy-ish years old. Yeah, and um, you know it's. Very rare. And it's just, you you know, it's just literally irreplaceable. And so um, it doesn't prevent me from playing it and taking it places with me. But most things that, most things in this life I feel like are replaceable or a version of them could be procured, but not that one, not Marcel the Cello. So that's my answer.
0: I just read about a historical figure who is not famous for instruments, but happened to make violins Mm. and you can still get them. I can't remember who it is, but when I find out, I'll reach out.
2: Send me it. Emily, what about you? Gosh, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I would love to know a little bit more about the rules (laughs) of this endeavor because truly, is this, I I could not live without my phone. I, um, Mm. so I think that that would be, you know, in a world in which, if I give up this thing, I can never get it again. I need my phone. I think I'm I'm deeply unsentimental. So otherwise, it would just be my pets. And I don't know if we think that I own my pets or not. Mm. You can't, you can't mm-hmm. have
0: Emily in your phone without right phone. Without <laughs> Emily's phone without my phone.
2: Well, who would I be? I would be but another lawyer just in Emily
0: DC. in your wherever. Yeah.
1: In your in your in your head.
0: Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
1: Amazing. So today's topic is how to make meaningful and big political change. The midterms are on the corner, y'all. And um, I want to ask you just to get us started, Emily. How do you cover this topic daily without just going bananas?
2: You know, to a significant degree, everyone chooses their specialization because it's something they're able to do day in, day out. And I think because it's my vocation and has been for so long, I approach it possibly more academically than most people. But I think a big part of it is also that for, for me at least, right, it's always about the end goal, which is improving our community, improving everyone's lives. And that takes work. And it takes keeping up to date with everything that's happening and making sure I'm able to analyze all the information. And, and for me, that's really what activates me. And yeah. so I, I, I wake up and the first thing I do is read the news, not because I have to, but because I want to. And that's really my personality. Um, I know all the, the Enneagram people and all of those things. They have lots of theories <laughs> about how I'm able to do this. I don't really know. But I, you know, for me, it's really just something that I'm very passionate about. And so it always drives me to move forward. That's not to say I don't get frustrated <laughs> or upset, you know what I mean, or angry. I certainly do. But um, it still drives me to keep moving forward.
0: So I actually I, I wanted to go from there into a little bit of a discussion of the operating system or the OS for for each of these political parties. And we we talk about the OS on the show a lot, but basically we just mean the foundational principles and beliefs and norms and practices, like kind of the, the bedrock of how things operate and how things work. And if you had to summarize the OS for each party. What would you say? What would what would come up? And if you had to summarize the OS, maybe for our political system at large, where would you go?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure I see any difference between the OS of the <laughs> two parties, <laughs> nice. to be honest. Nice. Right. Like I think that the fundamental structure of our political system is that which drives them. Now the values and policy opinions and ideological bends and how they pull those levers and and push those buttons is different. But the the overwhelming structure, I think, remains the same. You know, I focus on national politics, and that's sort of the constraints of the discussion I'll have today because, of course, there's a million different types of elections and they all have different constraints and possibilities. But right at the end of the day, an elected politician's job is one thing. It's to get elected again. <laughs> yeah. And, All of the structures that we have set up is to allow those people to do that and allow parties to maintain majorities so that they can vote in the policies based on the values they care about, you know, with a majority.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: at the end of the day, you know— More broadly, when you think about the fundamental threats that we have today, it's their structural threats. The biggest threats we face today are those that are structural, right? It's (laughs) destroying actual democracy. Mm -hmm. And when you start having gerrymandering, when you start having independent state legislative doctrine, those types of things, where we are in a constrained system that is no longer... You know, one person, one vote. I think that's when the systems start to change, and there is a difference between the parties there, of course. Sure. And they view how to control structures in different ways.
1: Hmm. A lot of times when we talk about system design, we say, you know, the system is perfectly designed to do what it does. <laughs> if you want to say what the two parties systems are perfectly designed to do as in their current
2: incarnation what would you say no oh, i don't think they're perfectly designed to do anything <laughs> Um, You know, I think it's a phenomenally flawed system, right? You know, I think at the end of the day, the Republican Party is a homogenous party. And it's a party that has two main constituencies. One are corporations who have tremendous amount of capital and are able to wield that capital to allow their party to win. And when sure. their party wins, their party does things that are to their economic benefit because they're pure capitalistic actors. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they have their base, which is again a homogenous base. The Democratic Party, it's a big tent party. So mm. it's much more complicated. There's a lot of different constituencies they have to deal with. And it is it is much less of a hierarchy than the Republican party. Right. So I think they're it's they're very different beasts when you look at the two different parties.
0: That was the thing I was going to point out when you said they have the same OS. I think that's true to a large extent, but one of the things that seems apparent to me is the relationship that both parties hold with authority seems very different in the sense that on the right there's a there's a real palpable sense of like Authority figures know, and we should ca- kind of comply and align and keep our messaging the same. And there's a lot of following. And in the in the, on the left, it feels like we're a little bit more skeptical of authority figures generally, and and much more willing to question them, even when they're you know in power, etc. And so it creates a kind of a different follow through and a different ability to execute on a strategy that that in some cases I think really hurts the the left.
2: I mean, I think that's a, a a criticism that a lot of people hold. You know, the the fundamental animus behind the Trump campaign was that the Republican Party is broken, and I'm going to come in and fix it. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And right, and then we have Marjorie Taylor Greene and all of her ilk who are all talking about rhinos, Republican in name only, right? And mm. so I I think that it's always easier to think the other side has it easier. Mm. um yeah. and i have a lot of colleagues who work on the republican side of the aisle and they always assure me that they have as many problems as i do mm-hmm. right, um, you know right. but i i think that the reality is hating authority is a universal <laughs> experience for all of us and it's a particularly american institution the way you resolve that is probably different, right? Like there's a much more bootstraps ideology on the right than there is on the left. And I think those sort of fundamental values are a big difference. But but hating the people who lead you, I think is pretty universal. You know, on the, the message consistency, I think that's a couple of things. One, that's, I think, because of this homogenous versus big tent. Sure. But it's also because of the levers and pulleys that the Republican system has at play, which is that there are organizations with boatloads of cash from those corporations who are going to benefit from having Republicans in power, and they are providing messaging support. They yeah. are providing resources and research and guidance and all of these types of things. They are providing Working groups and and all of this work right messaging doesn't exist. It doesn't just happen. You mm-hmm. need people to make it happen, and that is an ex- it's an extremely robust system on the right, whereas on the left it is much more organic. Not to say mm-hmm. there's not not to say there's not tons of people doing this work because of course there are, but it is more organic and much more decentralized.
0: Are you telling me Marjorie Taylor Greene uses research?
2: I mean, how do you think she found out about the space lasers?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. That was gonna be that was that was where my mind was going based on the question that Aaron asked you was about centralization and decentralization. So, you know, in the work that we do in the world and and mostly with companies, this is a big this is a big topic of debate is how much is sort of controlled at the middle or at the top and cascaded and and there's an expectation of alignment, and how much is more like we have some print. Principles that we adhere to and the people who are at the edges can interpret those and act with their own authority. And I'm curious how you see that showing up in the operations of our political system.
2: You know, I'm not an employee of the Democratic Party, and I don't know how they are making these decisions Mm -hmm. and how that sort of structure works. I think social media has, to a significant degree, changed the way we receive messaging because we're able to see the entire array of people and see what they're saying at any moment. You know, yesterday, there was the January 6th hearing, and I immediately looked at what POTUS was posting on Instagram, right? Which mm-hmm. is, normally, I would have had to wait for the news cycle to deliver me the news tomorrow, and I wouldn't known exactly at that moment what they were choosing to message. But now I do. And I'm able to see that message consistency or, or lack thereof, mm-hmm. and I think that that has really changed my interpretation of message consistency. But, you know, I, I, there are certainly a lot of people in the party and a lot of consultants and a lot of organizations that do tons of research on message consistency and are working extremely hard. And the degree to which that goes out into the culture or not is, I, I think, complicated and frankly confusing. And I have an entire internet presence that exists for me <laughs> to share what I think the messaging should yeah. be. Right,
1: right, right. It's That's really, that's really interesting.
0: <laughs> so I guess the... The next question I have is the OS of the whole political system actually incentivizes certain behaviors. And it seems like right now we're at this point where extremism is the thing that's rewarded, not compromised. There was this political ideology, at least mythologically in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where it was like, yeah, we go out and have dinner across the aisle and we figure things out and we're all rational adults. And now we've gone, I think, to, to a place where there's a lot more vitriol and a lot less compromise. And even being seen with the other side publicly is kind of a demerit. So I'm just curious how you think that's originated and what those incentives actually are.
2: I think that's a really... Interesting and important question, and I'll start with one caveat, which is it was a lot easier to get along with the opposite party when you are all rich white men and you share all, many of the same beliefs, right. interests, and accountability factors. Mm. So, right, like a lot has changed in our society. Uh, people of color, you know, women—we're <laughs> here now, yeah. uh, and they have to deal with that, and that has has changed. The backdrop, but you know, there's lots of other things. There's the rise of opinion media. A lot of people think that Fox News in particular was a huge driver of extremism. You know, and to take a step backwards, I think a lot about people's instincts for what we need to do to solve the structure of our political problems Mm -hmm. and the. I talk about this on my Instagram all the time and I solicit people's opinions. Like, what do you think needs to be changed? And the answers I hear a lot are we need third parties, mm-hmm. we need term limits, and we need corporate PAC money to be closed off. Mm-hmm. And I don't think those things are the solutions to the problems. Mm. And I think that they are emotionally, viscerally feeling that they solve something because it's like third party is like you just, you're buying a new day planner and you're mm-hmm. going to be organized when you just get this <laughs> new day planner. <laughs> totally. Yeah, and and this third party is going to solve the problem. But, you know, it's going to be the same people voting. It's going to be the same money. It's going to be the same majority that needs to be created in Congress. The problem that people think third parties will solve is that moderate people, non-extremists, will be able to be elected. They will be able to get through the partisan primary system because Mm -hmm. the problem— is the partisan primary system. You know, there's significantly lower voting in primaries, and the people who do vote are the people who sit on the fringes of the party. So in order to win your partisan primary, you need to go fringe. Mm -hmm. That behavior is rewarded. And, you know, the media... Rewards and the soundbite driven media rewards people taking stances. People love stances. And that means not working with the other side, right because that's not a that's not a fun fight to have. It's much better to fight the other side. And the solution to the partisan primary problem is ranked choice voting. Yeah, and and you know, and that's why even when you look at Andrew Yang and his forward party that he's created, it's theoretically a third party, but really it's an advocacy organization for ranked choice voting. Mm. <laughs> um, which, great. I mean, I agree with. There's there's a whole other conversation to have about fusing fusion parties like the Working Families Party, which I do think have value, and that's a different conversation. But you know, when we talk about no corporate PAC money, and that's mm-hmm. people's big. Focus and the NRA gives money to people, and that is driving people's dedication to gun issues. Well, corporate PAC money, number one, it's maxed out at $5,000. And like politicians are cheap, but not that cheap. The problem isn't the PAC money, it's the super PAC money, mm-hmm. right? That's when you're in the billions. Billions, that's, right? That's the problem. And um, the problem, you know, the power of the NRA isn't in cutting $5,000 checks. Right. The power of the NRA is the control over a huge American voting bloc that show up in partisan primaries and are one issue voters and will always vote the way the NRA tells them right mm. and that is where their power lay so i think that you know, it feels really easy to say, like, let's let's just cut PAC money. Let's elect people who say they refuse corporate PAC money, which, I mean, great. Either way, it doesn't really matter to me. But, you know, I, I don't think that's the solution to the structural problem that people are seeing, which is they feel that their, their elected politicians aren't being held accountable to the interests and whims of the people who elected them. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there's gerrymandering, there's the electoral college, right? Like there's a whole other series of structural things that are... um, I don't know what the word would be. They're they're changing the forces of the the system. Yeah. Making it not work the way it should be, and I think they're not as sexy, right? Like they're not as fun as term limits, which feels great because it's essentially punishment. Mm. <laughs> and we love punishing people. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, again, I don't know what term limits actually solve. The idea is it will make people less accountable to corporate interests because they don't develop these long-term interests, but on the other hand, if you're limited to 8 years in office, that means you have to get a job when you get out. Mm-hmm. So you gotta be working on that. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I think it's it's not the solution to the problem. We should get rid of dark money or at least require people to disclose dark money. We should figure out how these corporations who are using billions of dollars, frankly, just a few billionaires, are using that money to create really saturated ideologies in our country that then influence voting patterns. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And
1: you know. In the place where we do this work, a lot of, you know, a lot of times we, we work in, in really, really big companies, really big, really old companies that have sort of monolithic bureaucracy that's crumbling and that can't basically do what they want to do and have unhappy employees and dropping stock prices and all of the things that you know about. And there's there's often a drumbeat, you know, to, to your exact point, there's also often a drumbeat from the constituents inside of those systems to be like, fire the CEO or like, you know four-day work week and like there's not necessarily anything wrong with those solutions particularly except that they're not going to fundamentally change a system that is designed to do what that system does and so (laughs) my, my question to you is like I often I often hear in the circles that I run in you know there's obviously a very high degree of frustration which with like the way in which the US government is serving the people of America. And then it's like, we need overhaul, like burn it down. And I'm like, okay, well, I mean, that's not how system change actually works. So so talk a little bit about like, knowing that, knowing that like everything you just mentioned cannot be whole cloth, ripped out and replaced with something better, because no one has the authority or ability to do that thing. What are like, what are first moves that are possible like what are levers that you look at and you go these would be the things like even when you talk about dark money like what does it look like in practice to get at one of these roots
2: and do something about it so i have two answers to that question First, to specifically answer your dark money question, Sheldon Whitehouse has a bill called the Disclose Act that would make uh, all of these corporations and the super PACs have to disclose the money. So we'd get information that we would then be able to use to understand the path of the dark money mm. um, and to have that pass Congress we need to either have no filibuster in the Senate, or we need 60 Democrats in the Senate. Every single Republican voted against the Disclose Act in September, right? Mm. So it's a very that's a simple answer to your question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know how to get ranked choice voting, get Democratic majorities in the state legislatures, and have them vote on it. And governors are, have to be Democratic also, right? Like we we know that Republicans start losing, and they don't they won't support ranked choice voting. Uh, we've seen this in already happening because of the election in Alaska, for example. Marjorie Taylor Greene immediately came out because she was very mad on behalf of Sarah Palin. Mm. You know, But I think more broadly, my perspective on the solution to the burn-it-down problem is you, general mm. you, right? That if all of us are upset about the way our country is going, the solution is all of us getting more involved. And the reality is because people have been turned off by politics because it's all yelling and it's hysteria and they also have really busy lives and they have to get food on the table and sometimes they have to work three jobs and they don't have the bandwidth to deal with this, it has created a vacuum. And that vacuum has been filled by extremists. And the only way to get those extremists out is for more reasonable, calm people to go in. Mm -hmm. And that requires work and it requires engagement and it requires thinking about these issues pretty regularly and you know what i try to do on my platform is provide people ideas for way that they can get ways they can get engaged and from really small actions to really large actions and all of if we all start communally engaging in small actions right that will build up to be a really big change and i think it's it's not an easy answer and so people don't really like it right like it's it's not telling people our political problems can be solved by a third party, which is great because I don't have to do anything for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, It's telling everyone you need to start talking to your friends and family about politics. You need to start reading the news so you know what people are actually talking about and aren't just eating sound bites from commercials, mm-hmm. right? You need to vote in every single election and you need to research who these people are, who you're voting for, which is not always easy. It's hard to find out. You know, Moms for Liberty is this organization that wants to discourage destroy public schools in America. Fundamentally, that is their goal. They are the ones who are pushing book banning. They are the ones who are saying, like, if you have a kindness sign in your classroom that that's grooming all of these terrible things, and they're running for school boards across the country, and people send me DMs of what their campaigns look like, and you Mm -hmm. would never know. That that's their actual goal. Because they just talk about, you know, parents' rights and freedom and (laughs) things like that. And you really have to dig down. You have to show up to a candidate forum. You have to do research to see where their funding is coming from. You you have to put in a lot of work. People are going on Facebook groups and sharing this information. So social media is allowing this type of information sharing. Of course, it presents its own problems with misinformation sharing. But, you know, at the end of the day, I truly believe that the only way that we can solve the fundamental virus of American democracy, right? like I, I'm not in any way shape or form saying that we we have a perfect political system. I definitely don't think we do. but the solution is really just us and all mm. of us starting to work hard
0: so I think just to like put on the skeptical listener hat for a second i I think I agree with that in spirit, but there's a there's like a fundamental flaw in in that needing to be the way to solve the problem I think which you sort of hinted at, which is that for the extremists, nothing else matters as much like someone who's willing to like throw books away, go burn something, stand outside of a clinic all day and not go to work that like their level of commitment and irrational exuberance about their issue far exceeds the average American on any issue. And I worry if the goal is we all have to show up and be as excited and as committed as them that it's just never going to happen essentially that like it may be the solution but it's the impossible solution so give me some hope or some ways of thinking about that that open up new new stories for me
2: <laughs> well you know i think it's probably even worse than that which is not <laughs> only are those zealots more willing to dedicate their entire lives to their cause there are organizations and companies with tremendous resources willing to pay for that
0: because
2: they know that they can get Republicans to win elections based on culture war issues. And And then then when the Republicans are in power, they can get the deregulation so they can put chemicals in our rivers, you know, which is less money for them. And all that matters is the bottom line. So totally deck stacked against us but there's a lot more of us than there are of them Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day we still live in a democracy midterms are really important to make sure we continue to live in a democracy but assuming that democracy is preserved over the next three years you know we have that power at the end of the day and we have to believe what's the other option here Mm -hmm. (laughs) authoritarianism Um, a, a, you know, going into a country where women have no bodily autonomy, where the police are able to kill black and brown people at their will, right? Like that's not a good option. No, I don't like that. Yeah. So, so we have to do the other thing (laughs) and we certainly can do it. And I think one of the, one of the things that the internet does is, um, fixate on good news anecdotes, and they're singular anecdotes that people like. You know, they like the dog greeting the veteran coming home from war, whatever. Sure. But there are bigger stories about success. Like, look mm. at student loan forgiveness. Ten years ago, that was a fringe idea. People would laugh you out of the room if you said that was going to happen. And it happened. Mm. It was less than 10 years. I mean, that is a huge shift. Anyone who was politically aware in the 90s remembers our, our entire societal view towards gay marriage. You know, mm-hmm. if you were liberal, you were like, well, civil unions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but no one was really strong out on, on gay marriage except for people who were on the left. And now it's a really widely supported political issue. And, you know, we can get into the Supreme Court, which is a whole other problem. But, um, you know, <laughs> I, but I think that, right, like, there's this fundamental misunderstanding that our political structures are immutable. Look at Trump voters. Trump voters, there's a huge voting block that were working class Democratic voters, labor people, right, all of the union people, and a lot of them left to become Trump people. They went from the left to the right, you know, and there's another candidate that could come along from the left that could pull them back. Mm. And it's totally, totally possible. And I think social media has made the whims of the populace even more fickle. And a singular event can happen that can change opinions in an extremely aggressive, and quick way. And we don't know what that's gonna be, but it's I think totally, totally reasonable to think that could happen, for better or for worse, right? Like I'm not saying one or the other would happen, but they're both possible.
1: Do you feel I don't more, know if that do you feel more hopeful now, Aaron?
0: I mean, I, I here's the thing, like that, that is so interesting to me is I do agree that there have been major shifts in political and socii- social ideology and law in my lifetime. What I think I struggle with is I'm not sure that the reason those happened is cuz people showed up to the polls. Like I feel like a huge part of the gay rights movement and and you know social progress there was coming from media. Mm. And and I wonder about like the stories we're telling ourselves now and how they're affecting what will be the next issues to surface. So yeah, I do feel better, but I also feel more curious about well, like the combination or the yeah, the, what's in the chili?
2: But you're 100% right. It, it was like Will and Grace probably did more than anything else. And Human Rights Campaign, right? These organizations that were working in the background to change attitudes towards these issues. But, you know, politicians, as I said, their singular task is to get reelected. Right. The way they get reelected is they get enough votes. And so they have to have their finger on the pulse of their voting populace. Yep. Who's going to vote for them in their partisan primary, theoretically? Um, and so, it didn't directly result in votes, right? Like there isn't this idea that suddenly everyone became one issue gay marriage voters. But and you know, this this the premise of this conversation is slightly more complicated because it was an issue decided by the court, but whatever. You know, I think that the reality is these social attitudes translate into votes on the floor mm-hmm. of Congress, right? And and or political decisions. Student loans ended up being a executive order, not a congressional decision. But that was because there was this huge groundswell of support in the public square for this issue. And the Biden administration decided it would be in their electoral benefit to do this rather than to their detriment. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Before we started recording, I was I was <laughs> singing Emily's praises both to her and to Aaron. That I, I I do think for a lot of the reasons that we've already talked about in the last bunch of minutes, trying as a regular ass person in the world who has <laughs> other priorities and responsibilities to understand what the fuck is going on in politics is really difficult, and in, in, in many cases it seems like opaque and jargony and intentionally challenging to figure out what the fuck is going on. So 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 Emily when you when you talk to us about people having more understanding, you know, being well informed going into the midterms, reading the news, etc. um because you're someone who does a good job of translating from insider to the broader public, help us and our listeners understand like what is the way to educate ourselves that is realistic. Uh,
2: Follow Emily in your phone on (laughs) Instagram.com. It's a really good start. That's how I found you. (laughs) Um, You know, I think the most important thing is being willing to take the time Mm. uh, and willing to put in a little bit of energy because to a significant degree, it, it, it becomes less complicated the more you follow along and you learn about some of the terminology, right? Filibuster is a confusing one. Cloture is a confusing one. But once you understand it, then you understand all those conversations moving forward. Once you understand the committee process, right? All of these different things, once you understand that only the Senate is the one who's voting on Supreme Court nominees and why those are two things that are very connected and why political appointees are so important and what Mitch McConnell's role has been in changing how that system has been created. And Harry Reid, don't forget. But, you know, I think that people need to be willing to do a little bit of hard work, but even just exposing yourself to the news, there's now, there's a million newsletters that exist Mm -hmm. now and are, I think it's, easier than ever to get really uncomplicated political news and that is fact-based, right? Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of newspapers that have newsletters and then a million sub stacks. And then there's, you know, people like me who exist on social media. So I, I think that there's a lot of options for people. And, but the other thing I would say is like, it doesn't, it do, it's not an all or nothing thing, right? Mm-hmm. Being informed is, a, is an action, And if that's what you're able to do at this time in your life, that's an amazing action to do. It doesn't mean you have to suddenly become a a 10-hour-a-week volunteer for your local state legislative candidate. That's not necessary. Some people should do that because that's what they want to do, but everyone doesn't need to do that. And talking about issues on social media, with your family, with your friends, being more willing to have these conversations, I think is fundamentally the most important thing that we can all be doing. Because, again, the the vitriol and the hysteria that people have started to use to talk about politics, and then the reactionary, oh, it's impossible to talk about politics because, you know, you can't talk about party lines, I think is not reflective of reality. It's reflective of the fact that the people who are starting political conversations are the ones who are looking for a fight. Mm -hmm. And people (laughs) who aren't, aren't starting those conversations. I only talk about three subjects, two of which are politics and dogs. So I talk about politics with everyone all the time. If you're driving me in a cab, if you are standing next to me in line at the supermarket, right, all the time. I talk to a lot of people who are MAGA. I talk to people who are Bernie bros, right? everything under the sun, and it is rare that I have a conversation that goes poorly. Mm. I'm always able to have a calm, reasonable conversation mm-hmm. in which we develop some shared narrative. And the reality is, right, psych, you guys know much more about this than me, but like psychological research shows it's these shared conversations that allowed us, allow us to develop shared narratives and shared values. Mm-hmm. And so that means we all have to start having these conversations right. out loud with people and i consider social media to be the most significant public square in existence and you know in history and it's an amazing opportunity for all of us and i get very frustrated about people's denigration of social media and um i think that it's a it's an amazing opportunity and every day i get dms from people saying you know i posted about politics for the first time and i was so so shocked at the responses i got from my friends who were like oh there's an election i didn't know and mm. and you know people are sharing this information and and that's going to change how we talk about everything and then change how we act about them
0: so i think that that brings me to to something i've been wanting to ask about for a while and and was excited to kind of fold into this episode which is talking about the operating system of media and social media as it relates to this political theater. Because I think, on the one hand, you're 100% right that you can find incredible places to educate yourself and you can engage in pretty incredible and heartwarming conversations in social media about political issues or whatever you have going on. But at the same time, the, the operating system of both of those businesses is that they are businesses, who have to make profit and return to shareholders. They're part of the same sort of shareholder virus that everything else that we were just talking about driving the political bus is part of. And so they're optimized both literally and figuratively for extremism in order to generate clicks and outrage and interest and shares and curiosity. How, how do you, as someone who kind of plays in that water and obviously wants better and more healthy discourse to like come to the surface... How do you think about what needs to happen next in that in those industries and what role does political regulation or involvement even have in in maybe creating some of those changes that need to happen or do you think it's fine the way it is?
2: No, oh, I definitely don't think it's fine. I think it's really frustrating. You know, and petitions are functionally a scam for people to get your email address so that they can ask you for money. Right. So that then they can hire more people to set up more petitions to ask you for more money. Right. Um, and people love the clickbait and I think that there's a fundamental problem on social media which is there's all these organizations that exist to get you a really emotionally revved up and get yeah. cortisol pumping to your brain and then they tell you, Oh, you want to feel better? Just give us five dollars. Yeah. And or just then buy you feel a better.
0: Or whatever and, they're hawking in the right. ad.
2: And it is an off-ramp to civic engagement. And I I think it's hugely problematic. And what I do is I talk about it on the internet all the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: my solution to the problem. You know, like I I there's definitely a conversation to have about whether the government should be regulating media. I think it's exceptionally challenging and rife with problems, and I haven't personally seen a policy solution that I think is better than no solution at this time. That doesn't mean there can't be one in the future. I certainly think that there's, you know, a lot of conversations to have about Section 230, and Mm -hmm. I personally want to see Nazis off the internet, right? And, like, these are big things, and I'm a terrorism litigator. So there's a lot of regulation around terrorism on the internet, right, especially in Europe, which has changed the way our clients experienced things versus 10 15 years ago when you would see you know videos of terrorist acts circulating online that's not yeah. happening anymore because of regulations that exist in mm. Europe so there's certainly opportunities and roles for the public and again we will be dealing with section 230 whether folks like it or not and i imagine many of your listeners don't like it but you know fundamentally People just have to be aware. And in this social media ecosystem, in in the grand scheme of things, is regularly new, right? And people have to grow accustomed to what it is. I also think that people are starting to get sick of it. Mm. Um, They're learning the scam, right? And when you look at these organizations that make, I mean, they make gargantuan sums of money off of this, but their donors are old. And those Mm. people are all going to die. And then educated consumers of social media are going to come along and not fall for it. Right. More grifters will come along with new grifts, but such is the way of human existence, I guess, you know, the way I deal with it is I make no money on the internet. So um, I get to just say, stay pure and say whatever I think at any given time. But I try to make sure to talk about, you know, what people are gaining from these posts and how, you know, on the other hand, this is how you get people engaged and how you realize that there's extremism happening, you know, and how you make people pay attention to these issues. So I I understand also people's inclination to care about these things because at the end of the day, you know, I've had a lot of jobs where I couldn't get anyone to pay attention to my issue. And I've been like, this is really important. Why don't you listen to me? And, you know, that's, that's the flip side of it, right? And these are just constraints that exist that we have to work with.
0: I actually was listening to a show that Rodney and I like to hate listen to. And an idea came up that I actually think is really smart and and kind of fits into this conversation, which is there should be probably in the future, in the near future, some legislation about allowing you to control which algorithm is being used on you. And Mm. so, whether you go to Facebook or whether you go to the Wall Street Journal or whether you go to wherever you're going, having a marketplace of algorithms from trusted sources, so you can be like, I want the Greenpeace algorithm for what I'm going to see. I want the whatever, you know, I want the the Emily algorithm for what I'm going to see. And actually letting the user and the consumer have the control of how they're being manipulated is a really profoundly interesting idea. And I think it would be as simple as saying, you get to have your core one as a business, but when you reach a certain scale, you're you're regulatorily obligated to allow people to make that selection for themselves and, and to basically drag sliders to optimize. Like, What do you want the system to be doing for you about violence, about imagery, about you know, political extremism, et cetera. So I thought that was really profound and, and there's probably a million reasons why it would be resisted, but I think it, as a consumer, it really excited me.
2: seems like also a really easy way for people to self-select into echo chambers.
0: I mean, aren't we <laughs> already doing that? Isn't the algorithm already doing that for us? They are doing that for permission? us,
2: but, you know, I guess the question is, is there a solution? I will say in general the United States Congress as a body is, is not great on legislating on cutting edge tech issues, right? Like they don't (laughs) don't act quickly. And you know, that's right. Like this is the whole problem from section 230 is we're we're working off old law that was made before all of this existed. And so in general, these types of things, I have a lot of concerns about how you could right. like at the end of the day, I'm a, a legislative drafter. That's my fundamental core job. And, um, I have a lot of concerns about how it could be drafted in a way that's more evergreen and that overwhelms all my other concerns. You know, I think that, I think you are right that this is something that we are going to have to confront as a society. And at the end of the day, most things need to be regulated in some manner we've seen over and over again that like f- full deregulation is not a solution to our problems um, <laughs> my favorite my favorite article that I share is called when the Bears came to town or something like that about a town in New Hampshire that tried full deregulation and then like bears showed up because people were feeding bears uh, so I, I certainly think that's a it's, it's again, something we are going to have to confront, and then the question is, when Congress confronts this issue, who do you want to be the ones deciding that? Yeah. I think that
1: where I want to wrap up, because we, we have been touching a little bit on the role of organizations throughout this conversation of, of corporate structures, whether that be through funding channels, whether that be in terms of how we get our news and the lack of transparency around the choices that are being made for us, etc., Obviously, Emily, we know that this is something you give a lot of thought to. Given the current state of things, what role would you love to see big corporations play that's different from what they're doing today?
2: Well, corporations are people uh, in today's (laughs) society, so I hope they are willing to exercise (laughs) their political power with reasonableness and a focus on justice. Um, You know... Look, corporations are not lacking of power in Washington, D.C. They are represented by the Chamber of Congress, probably the most powerful interest group. They all have trade associations. They employ thousands upon thousands of lobbyists. You know, I have wonderful restaurants out my door, probably paid for by the lobbyists earning corporate profits. Um, But, you know there's probably also a lot of corporations who don't know what their trade organizations are representing them as. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a lot of opportunity for people who are busy, you know, keeping their head down, making widgets or whatever it is that they're doing to say, like, I'm going to get more involved and learn about what my representatives, my trade representatives are advocating for and whether I think that's good or not and whether Mm. I think that could be expanded and whether there are ways to use the power of our voice to, you know, to change the direction of the country, or at minimum serve as a countervailing force to the corporations who want to use their power for evil. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think that that is, there is a lot of opportunity there. My experience working in politics has led me to believe that I think there's a lot of corporations that don't really understand how to engage in politics. Mm. Right. And they hire government affairs people whose job is to make their bosses happy. Right. And like mm. for me, the premier example is CEOs, big corporate CEOs who are like, I am an important figure. So I need to come and do a tour and talk to all the other important figures. I need mm-hmm. to go talk to all the senators. And they, you know, pay a lot of money to have people set up all these meetings and they go on their little tour, but they don't talk to staff. They don't have a advocacy agenda. They don't have a multi-part plan, right? Like they don't have all of the other components of an effective advocacy strategy that's necessary because they think at the at the end of the day, right, like they work in a world in which they say something and it happens. Mm-hmm. And that's not how Congress works. <laughs> uh, Congress, Congress works based on consensus and a variety of other complicated factors and processes and time and many stakeholders who are not corporations who we have to be accountable to also. So I also think that it's important for companies to realize that politics is an expertise. It is something they are going to have to engage in. Like don't be Airbnb and Uber and refuse to engage in politics until it's really pushing on your door. You know, crypto crypto has learned that lesson, right? Like they're in it early. I don't know what they're gonna do with that, but they are. And so I think that For me, right, I I have to believe that there are a lot of corporations who who do want to do good and do see how having a, (laughs) a society where people are educated and fed and the trains run on time and the water is clean means they will have educated, healthy workers, right? They will better contribute to the overall economic health of our country in its a more long-term vision of America than a short-term vision, but I have to believe those people exist and that they want to get more involved.
0: I mean, I think having to believe that those people exist is a great place to wrap up on this show because we certainly do. We,
1: we also have to believe it to to come to work every day. To get
0: up every day and not to cry in my soup. So yeah, that ma- that makes a ton of sense. And and it was really um, heartening to hear you talk about all that. Um, Emily, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work?
1: In your it, phone, Aaron.
0: I'm perfect. just kidding. Go ahead.
2: Uh, you can find me on Instagram. It's currently my only platform. Uh, I am at Emily in your phone.
0: Easily enough. Awesome.
2: Thanks so much for coming on the show, Emily. It was really nice to you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely.
0: Quick tip of the hat, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.